Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord's Day for this afternoon, begins with the much disputed question and answer AD, the Heidelberg Catechism. And this disputed because already for decades, different churches subscribing to the Heidelberg Catechism as a faithful confession. And also different people have been arguing that the wording of this question and answer is unnecessarily offensive. We may not agree with what the mass teaches, they say, but to call it a denial of the one sacrifice of Christ and then also an accursed idolatry, that's too much. That is unnecessarily offensive. And so there are indeed people who would like to take this phrase out of the catechism. It has been suggested many times. After some research had been done and some discussions with the Roman Catholic theologians took place, the Christian Reformed Church has decided to leave this question and answer in the catechism, but with footnotes stating that the catechism does not accurately reflect the official teaching and practice of today's Roman Catholic Church, and that therefore this question and answer 80 are no longer confessionally binding upon the members of the Christian Reformed Church. So a lot of dispute, a lot of discussion about the question and the answer of this of the catechism. The thing is, brothers and sisters, is that the Roman Catholic Catechism of 1992, that's quite recent, still teaches pretty much the same about the Mass as our Heidelberg Catechism says it in our answer to question 80. And so this afternoon we will with the guidance of Lord's Day 30 look at what the Bible teaches about the Lord's Supper and how it differs from the Roman Catholic Mass, what, what the Mass teaches. And we will also look at the question of who are allowed to participate in the Lord's Supper and who are not. And we will do this then under the theme, celebrating the Lord's Supper, we celebrate the completeness of Christ's sacrifice. And we will see two things. The first, the complete sacrifice in which we trust and on the rest that this complete sacrifice brings. Our Lord's Day begins with the question, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the Papal Mass? Now, first of all, the name Papal Mass is not just name-calling, but it refers to the source of the Mass, namely the Pope. The word Papal comes from the Latin word Papa, which means Father, just as the word Pope also means father. It's also derived from the Latin word Papa. And the word Mass is derived from the Latin word Missa. The closing words chanted at the Mass are Ita Missa Est. Simply means go. It is the dismissal. So, what originally was called the Lord's Supper in the early churches and remained to be called so for about a thousand years has 
after those almost thousand years, turned into the mass. The mass was, pro was proposed to the church already in the ninth century by a monk with the name of Robertus, but it did not become part of the official Roman Catholic Church church liturgy until the year 1215, when Pope Innocent III approved it at the Ladro Council that was held that year. And it was there already called the Papal Mass. So it's not name calling. It's really just the name, the Papal Mass. Now, the first part of the answer to question 8, he begins with telling us very brief, briefly what the Lord's Supper testifies, or you may also say declares to us, according to the scriptures. The second part tells us what the papal mass teaches. The first part of the answer divides itself into two parts. But in, in our answer, but there are actually three parts to it. The first part deals with the completeness of the forgiveness of sins to Christ. And the second part deals with our unity, our oneness with Christ. And then the third part tells us where Christ wants to be worshipped. First then about our complete forgiveness of sin. This is where the emphasis needs to be in our answer. The forgiveness of sins we have in Jesus Christ is complete. See, it is not denied in the Mass that, the, that, that there is forgiveness in Christ's blood, in Christ's sacrifice. What is denied in the Mass is the completeness of the forgiveness. That's what it Amsterdam deals with. And it's so biblical to emphasize that Christ's sacrifice was complete. Nothing else needed to be done. That's it. Christ did it all. That's why we read about the completeness of the forgiveness of sins already in Isaiah 8, 1, verse 18. It says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And in Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And in Isaiah 44, verse 22, I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud. And your sins like the morning mist. It is a complete forgiveness of all of our sins, brothers and sisters, and that counts for all of our sins. Even the gravest sin. Even that sin which you maybe have not managed to forgive yourself. Maybe that sin that the devil time and again uses to make you doubt, to make you think that if you truly were a child of God, you would have never done this or that. It's forgiven. It's the complete forgiveness of all of our sins. The sins which your community or your church, fellow church members have trouble forgiving you, they are forgiven. Yes, even that sin which you, in spite of all your efforts to fight them, keep on falling into time and again. It's a forgive, complete forgiveness of all of your sins, also those. That's what the Lord's Supper declares to you every time 
that has helped. The complete forgiveness of all of our sins, we, we have it. Not because, of course, what we do, not because of our Bible reading or our praying or being a member of the Canadian Reformed Church or our intricate knowledge of the finer point of the Reformed doctrines and traditions, not because of any of those things, not because of our faithfulness, and also not because of the fact that we have faith. None of those things contribute, even, it says in the Catechism and another place, even the best of our works is defiled with sin, and therefore they make things worse instead of better. And our faith in Christ, so important, but it is a gift that we have received from God. That does not contribute to the forgiveness of our sins either. No, we have a complete forgiveness of all of our sins only through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ that he himself accomplished on the cross, says our catechism. And then it says once and for all. It's a quote from Hebrew, once and for all. Four times, the inspired author of the letter to the Hebrews repeat this phrase to emphasize the completeness of Christ's sacrifice for us, once for all, four times. How can anybody miss it? And this is what the Lord's Supper declares to us. This is God's truth. And woe unto him or her who neglects such salvation and tramples the Son of God on the foot. But what does the Mass teach now? It teaches that Christ's work on the cross was not complete. And that the living and the dead do not have complete forgiveness of all their sins. The only way once the, the, that once forgiveness is complete is when Christ is sacrificed for each believer personally, every day again on the altar, in the church, by the priest. And it, it, it seems as if the words once and for all were never in the Bible at all. Brothers and sisters, at the Lord's table, we see the broken bread and the poured out wine. And we hear, as it were, the Lord's, the Lord's voice. Take eat, this is my body that is broken for you. Take drink over all of you, this is the blood of the covenant. And while we Dan zitten aan de tafel, we remember our Lord Jesus Christ, how he hung on the cross. And we remember those, those, those great words that came from the cross. I thirst, Father forgive them, for they do, they, do, they do not know what they are doing. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then finally, it is finished. But the mass teaches that it was not finished. It is not enough. The priest had to get involved. And in what they call an unbloody sacrifice, the bread and the wine need to become the real flesh and the real blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he needs to be sacrificed time and again by the priest on behalf of the believers. Believers alive in the church as well as those who died and who are now being purified in purgatory and terribly, terribly suffering has been such an awesome income for the Roman Catholic Church through the ages. Old widows, 
buying for a lot of money, masses, for their husbands in purgatory. So on. According to the papal mass, Christ's sacrifice on the cross did take away original sin, the fact that one is a born sinner. And so saved everybody from, who's baptized from eternal punishment in hell. But those daily sins and the temporary punishment for those sins, they need to be paid. And therefore, Christ needs to continually be sacrificed on the altar by the priest. And it is a denial of the complete of the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. You see? And that is offensive. And it really should offend us all. So it is not the language of the catechism that's so offensive, as some even Reformed theologians claim. But it's the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church about the Mass and about what our Lord Jesus did. That's offensive. And we are right to say so. We should never say, be ashamed of the language of our catechism. Now, none of us here believes what the Mass teaches, I trust. But it does not mean that we just can live on and, and never check out ourselves, check up, check up on ourselves. We need to do that because it is so natural to us to just not fully trust in Christ's sacrifice as a complete forgiveness of all of our sins. That comes so natural to us. It's a little, little Roman Catholic, a little Pope in all of our hearts. Deep in our hearts, there lingers that sentiment that our good works should count for something. Just don't deny it. Look a little bit deeper in your heart. You will find it. We know that's not so, but nevertheless. And we have the deep-rooted desire to make up for our sins. Now, if we allow such sentiments to linger then this is to some extent also a denial of the completeness of the one sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Now, the second thing that question and answer 80 point out is our union, our oneness with Christ. It says that through the Holy Spirit we are grafted into Christ. Just as an, a branch of a, of, of a vine is grafted into an old stock and then lifts from that old stock. So we are crafted into Christ. We have become part of him. We live from him. Crafted into Christ. So, but we are crafted into him, our catechism says, who is in his body now in heaven? At the right hand of the Father. We are crafted into not, no one here on earth. We are crafted into him who is already where one day we might go. So here we are, able to take the bread and drink the wine as a sign and a seal 
Dat means as a reminder and an assurance that of our sharing in the body and the blood of our Lord. But it is a sign. And what is the reality? What do we need to do to really become one with Christ? To really share in his body and blood? Shall we go up into heaven to bring Christ down by sacrificing him on the altar over and over again? No, but what must we do? Nothing. Nothing at all. While we sit on the Lord's table, we believe, we trust in the complete sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the bread and the wine declares to us that we have to do nothing, that all is done. God himself, God the Holy Spirit by faith, grafts us into Christ. We have been made one with him. We have been made part of him. And so his blood is our blood. His flesh is our flesh. As surely as I eat from the bread and drink from the wine, so surely are we one with him. Now already we are one with him who is our head in heaven. But here too, here too, brothers and sisters, the mass teaches that the priest had to get, have to get involved. For it is by his power, by the power of the priest, while he speaks the words, the Latin words, hoc est corpus meum, which means this is my body, that then the bread and the wine literally changes into the real blood and the real flesh of the Lord Jesus Christ. <coughs> and then the priest places the bread, which is now the real flesh of the Lord, into the mouth of the believer. And it is done by this priestly act that according to the Mass, the believer comes on with Christ. The priest does it. The act of the priest, not of the Holy Spirit, the sign and the symbol becomes reality. And again, we need to be alert for similar sense. For we too, brothers and sisters, so easily puts too much stock in the outward symbols. That's what they do in the mass. We can do that too. Just think about what quibbling and what division has there been about the use of the one common cup or the individual cups. Or what kind of bread should be used. Or must only the ministers serve the bread and the wine at the Lord's table? Or may the elders do it too? Must there be a table at all? Hours and hours and hours of heated discussions took place because of those things. Now, that's not what the Lord's Supper teaches. That has to do a lot with our traditions. How we have always done it. Now, are those things are totally unimportant? No, they are not totally unimportant. But the point is that when the symbols become more important as what is symbolized, then we are already for a large part lost into the desert of superstition. That's what we have to watch for. Now, the third thing this answer points out is where Christ wants to be worshipped. You see, that's not on an altar. When the priest lifts up the box with the bread and the wine, 
just as the mass teaches. It is not at the table by making too much of the symbols either. But he wants to be worshipped in heaven while he sits at the right hand of his father. See, that's why we have those passages in the Bible. The passages that from the, in the beginning of Revelation that we see him sitting in the throne with his father, surrounded by four creatures, surrounded by 24 elders. That picture is put in our minds so that we can see him there, sitting at the right hand of his father, and we need to worship him there. Not here. It's not only counting for the Lord's Supper, but it counts for every time we gather together for worship on Sunday. That's where he wants to be worshipped. And that is according to the scriptures. The Lord's Supper testifies to us. We read in, that's what the Lord's Supper testifies to us. And, and we read in Colossians 3 verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. And in Hebrews 12. Verse 24 and 23. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and the innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who have been enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. That's by your worship. While we sit at the Lord's table, and also as you worship, we in faith lift up our hearts to Christ. That's why we have that picture. We can, we can close our eyes, we can picture it. And we lift our heart up to him. And that's how we worship. And then all the symbols, all, not only important at all, but they become less important because you see the reality. That's how we should worship. And if we all worship, there are a lot of less a lot less disputes about the smaller things. Sit at the table of the Lord. We lift up our hearts so that we worship Coram Deo before the face of God. That's what Calvin said already. And this we, and I repeat it, and this we do not only on the Lord's Supper table, but Every Sunday when we gather for worship, it is there at the right hand of God what Christ is, that we sing our, our songs of praise, that we lift up our prayers. And it's from there that the word, his word, his gospel comes to us. So we truly worship in holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and a living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. It says in Hebrews 10 verse 19 and 20. And now there is that question. Who is worthy? Who is worthy to enter such holy place? That place that on the right hand of God before his throne is a holy place that we all agree with. Now who is worthy to enter there? And the, I will ask a different question with exactly the same meaning. Who may come and sit at the Lord's table? That's the question of our catechism. And we look at that in our, in our second point. 
Question 81 asks, who are to come to the table of the Lord? Who is worship to, wor to worship who is worthy to worship God in heaven where Christ is at the right hand of his father? Now Psalm 15 asks a similar question. It says, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And, and, and then here is the answer that the psalm gives. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speak truth in his heart, who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friends, in whose eyes a vile person is despised and who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change, and who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. The, the, those, that says Psalm, Psalm 15, may, may, may dwell in God's sanctuary, may come upon the, the hill of the Lord. Well, they're different, brothers and sisters, with the answer that our Catechism gives. Listen, who are to come to the table of the Lord? And then it says not those who walk blamelessly, but it says those who are truly displeased in themselves because of their sins. Those who consider their sin an accursedness, says it in the Lord's Supper Forum. Now, which one is right? It cannot be both, right? Can they? Psalm 15 teaches that you have to be perfect, blameless. That you have to live that perfect life. And the Catechism speaks about people that are so sinful that they're displeased with themselves. That they despise themselves. And so it's true. The difference between what Psalm 15 says and what the Catechism answers is huge. There is a wide gap between those two answers. And still, brothers and sisters, they're both correct. Those answers. How is that possible? It's possible because Christ has filled the gap. Brothers and sisters, here is the difference which Christ makes. Here is the difference that your Savior makes. As we prepare ourselves to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we confess that we are sinners, that we despise ourselves for sinning every day again, and we look out our lives in light of God's word, and we see that in spite of our sincere intentions and efforts, we still live a life, we still do not live a life worthy of Christ. We fail him all the time. We confess it in our Lordship before. We do not have perfect faith. We do not serve God with such seal as he requires. Daily we have to contend with the weakness of our faith and with the evil desires of our flesh. And in all reality it means that the sins we conquer seem to be replaced by others. And so we failed our Savior. We despise ourselves but at the same time we cannot stay away from the Savior. Our love for Christ moves us time and again to the same person that we offended. Moves us time and again to the foot of the cross, and there, and there at the foot of the cross, a miracle does happen. Our sins become his, his righteousness becomes ours, his cross becomes our salvation, his, his stripes our healing, 
Our misery becomes His, and our glory and His glory becomes ours. Our filthiness becomes His, and His holiness becomes ours. And so we come to the Lord's table. And so we're in God's sight, those whose walk is blameless. We are in God's sight, those who do what's righteous. This is what the Lord's Supper testifies to us. For Christ's sake, God declares us worthy to enter that holy place. Christ made the difference. And so we may sit down at the Lord's table and have the bread and the wine testifying to us, Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, and learn from me that I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. We come to the table, and in the broken bread and the poured out wine, we see our Savior and we love him. And then we want to be with him, ever closer to him. And we want to see him face to face, who is the desire of our hearts. Oh Lord, how long? Oh come, Lord Jesus. And the Lord's Supper testifies to us that he will come quickly. And so at the Lord's table, we sit together and we are also one with each other. One with everyone who longs for his appearing. So those are the ones who are worthy to come to the table of the Lord. And the Lord's table is no, it's not for hypocrites. The Lord's Supper is absolutely not for people who fake the Christian faith. Yes, they come to church. They know, they even acknowledge that they are sinners, but that doesn't drive them to Christ. Deep in their heart, they find the Lord's commandments a restraint instead of a guide of the life, for their lives. With their mouth, they join God's people when they praise God, but their heart sings a different tune. They hate Satan, but not evil. They speak of forgiveness as an entitlement, but they do not know it. They speak of salvation, but they are not saved. They know all about the Savior, but they do not want to belong to him. And so they go on the Lord's table and, and they eat and drink judgment to themselves every time again. Not about the hypocrites. And then there are also mentioned in our answer those who do not repent. Now, other those who do not repent. You see, that it is just true that there is a lot of repentance among those who do not repent. Here are some biblical examples. Esau repented. We already know the story. King Saul repented more than once from persecuting David. Judas repented. They regretted what they had done because of the consequences. Not because they had committed a sin, a sin against the Lord. Now such repenters too eat and drink judgment to themselves. Those who do not repent are people that find excuses for their sins but do not seek forgiveness from the Lord. They believe that the Lord should just understand that they didn't, they didn't make themselves. No one is perfect. And no, they do not eat and drink the great and the final judgment upon themselves. The 
The judgment the Bible speaks of is the judgment of hardening of heart. See, that's what happened. That's the judgment the Bible speaks about. Judgment of hardening of heart. The scariest thing there is. The sins in which they persist become less sinful to them. Their conscience becomes quieter. The fact that they do not really belong to the Lord bothers them less and less. And the hypocrites more and more believe that they are true believers. And although this is not their final judgment, what a scary and an awful judgment it is, nevertheless, for what does it lead to? Question 82 asked, also about people that openly live in unbelief, people that do not care about right or wrong, if they are to be admitted to the table of the Lord, and, and of course not, they may not come to the Lord's table. Such people need to be excluded, not only from the Lord's table, but also even from the Lord's church. And here the church itself has a very important duty the members in the first place and then also the office bearers. You see, if any of the members are aware of a fellow church member who, loves, who lives in sin and so proves to be ungodly, they need to follow those directions of Matthew 18, the verses 15 through, 15 through 17. They must. It's their duty before God. It's, what, it's all what the, the next Lord's Day is all about. You see, elders cannot know everything about everyone. But if an ungodly person with the knowledge of even one member would sit at the Lord's table, then the Lord's table is profaned. And yes, then we know from the Bible that the wrath of God is kindled against that whole congregation because they knew about it and they didn't do anything about it. They allowed the table of the Lord to be profaned. And that's why we read in, in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 20, about people that were sick and asleep, it says, but it meant people that had died. And it was because there in that congregation, the table of the Lord was profaned. You can read it in that chapter. People would come in, some became drunk, and another one stayed hungry. Think about the story of Achan by Jericho and how the Lord punished the whole people of Israel. An unrepentant member must be reported to the church, to the elders, and then the elders must be obedient and use that key of discipline of the kingdom of God and if necessarily include such, matter, such, such members, ungodly members from that kingdom. And it's not harsh. It is not unloving. And it's not judgmental. It is of love that we do this. Love for our Savior. Who loved you so that he let his body be broken. And his blood poured out for you. Love also for your fellow believers for whom Christ died. So that the wrath of God will not come upon them. Because of your neglect. We close today's words. The, the Lord's table is for those 
who truly detest themselves because they keep on sinning. They keep on finding that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And out of the Lord's table, the bread and the wine testifies to them that they have, that they do have a complete forgiveness of all of their sins. Because Christ's sacrifice was complete. It was once for all. Amen.